1: Wall Street waltz, the big banks reporting strong results as the COVID recovery continues. Port plight, President Biden takes action to tackle the supply chain crisis. And planetary plunge up, Prince William says we should focus on Earth, not space. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Thursday. In a busy week so far, William Shatner's trip to the spheres brings him to the point of tears as US, U.S. ports are running all hours as the supply chain drama further sours. Chinese wholesale inflation the hottest in 25 years, and big banks are up, reporting their earnings, and investors are all ears. Wall Street bulls, meanwhile, all smiles and cheers. Take a look at that. The major averages higher pre-market tech. The outperformer once again as bond yields steady, a strong handover, as you can see there, from Europe too. Despite the array of ongoing challenges from rising prices, Supply chain shortages and higher energy costs too. Energy energised yet again. Brent crude closing in on $85 a barrel. Natural gas naturally higher to up almost 4%. And China really feeling the burn. New data on wholesale prices show a record rise in September as coal and natural gas shortages increase business costs there as well. It's perhaps no surprise that notes from the last Federal Reserve meeting show policymakers sounding the inflation alarm and are ready to begin reducing support as soon as next month. Tapering is one thing, of course. Rising interest rates or raising them is quite another. The San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly joins us later in the show with her thoughts and timeline. Rising rates though, good for banks. Profits, of course. Call it a bank earnings boom. Citigroup, Wells Fargo, Bank of America and Morgan Stanley all reporting night's results as the economic recovery gains pace, resulting in strong investment banking numbers, fewer loan loss reserves and robust deal making. And that's where we begin the drivers. Paula Monica. Joins us now, Paula is a bonanza, and it's tough to sort through them. But that's your job this morning, and welcome. The overriding theme, I think, is one of ongoing pandemic recovery, and of course, being able to release some of these loans that they put reserve aside as the defaults that they were fearing simply didn't happen.
2: Exactly, Julia. I think that really what you're seeing from all of these major banks, and we got it from J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, was very upbeat yesterday about their results and the uh, expectations going forward. Consumers and businesses did not wind up having the problems paying back loans that many had feared would happen in the midst of the very sharp economic downturn that we had last year when uh, the COVID-19 really became uh, both a health and economic crisis in the United States and of course the rest of the world so all of these banks you have J.P. Morgan Chase saying it yesterday but Citigroup Bank of America even troubled Wells Fargo today they're able to release some of these loan reserves because they don't wind up having they haven't wound up having as much of a problem with bad loans as they thought credit quality remains strong and consumers and businesses are starting to look to expand again and borrow even more money at rates that are still pretty low, even though bond yields have gone up and the Fed has hinted that rate hikes might be coming late next year.
1: Yeah, and as we've watched the uh, challenges and we talk about them, we have watched stock markets in particular March higher, the asset management businesses, whether we're talking about Citigroup, uh, Bank of America, as I look at them here, and Morgan Stanley as well, all outperforming the trading business as well at Citigroup, helping them see some incredibly strong results this quarter.
2: Yeah. Trading has been an extremely lucrative business for all of these Mm. banks, obviously on the equity side, but also bond trading as well. And, you know, in addition to asset management, all of these companies that have big investment banking businesses they're benefiting as well from a boom in merger activity. We've had a lot of initial public offerings, even all these SPACs that have been taking place. A lot of the big banks have to be advising companies on some of those transactions as well. So investment banking activity and revenue has been surging in this quarter. And that, of course, is great news. We're probably going to hear more from Goldman Sachs tomorrow when they report a continuation of this trend.
1: Yeah, I guess the critical thing and it comes down to what we hear from some of the CEOs on the uh, on the earnings calls as well and I know we were poring over it with JP Morgan and Jamie Dimon yesterday is any concerns about the pricing pressures any concerns about the rising energy costs because that is going to have an impact on consumer behavior whether it's on borrowing behavior or on lending behavior credit card behavior and that comes down I guess to how concerned some of these CEOs are when we when we get the earnings calls
2: yeah, most of the uh, big banks that have reported today, they're either in the midst of those earnings calls right now as we speak or a little bit later today, so we're going to have to dive into those conference call transcripts to see what, you know, people like Brian Moynihan, Jane Fraser, uh, you know, James Gorman, etc. have to say. But Jamie Dimon raised a very good point yesterday repeatedly on both the media call that the bank had with reporters as well as the analyst call. He's not particularly worried about rising inflation especially the fact that wage pressures are one of the main reasons why we're seeing inflation go up. He pointed out that after the pandemic, when we had so many bad gloomy economic news, people getting more money in their paychecks, that's not the worst thing in the world. So let's not get too caught up in this fear of inflation when the reason that we might be getting it is that people are bringing home more money that they have to spend. Yes. And in some cases,
1: pay too. Yeah. Pay rises are good inflation. As long as they don't have longer term impact on small businesses, it's always a balance here, isn't it? But yeah, um, without Congress being able to raise the minimum wage, pay rises are good rises in our view. Thank you very much there, Paul and Monica. All right. Let's move on. Speaking of reopening, starting today, tourists from 19 countries can now head to Indonesia's top holiday destination. The international airport in Bali was empty this morning, but that is likely to change as Minisha Tank reports from Singapore.
3: Like many beautiful resort islands across Southeast Asia, Bali has been hit hard by restrictions to curb the spread of COVID-19. But now some really welcome news. It's been announced that Bali can receive international visitors from a list of 19 countries. And on that list, some big hitters. China, India, Japan, New Zealand, France. Very valuable sources of tourism dollars. Indeed, Bali's economy derives 54% of its income from these international tourists. So this is news that's worthy of celebration. So why is it happening now? Partly because the situation around COVID-19 has improved drastically across Indonesia, but in particular in Bali the vaccination rate is running very high, with double doses of vaccinations running at more than 83%, and those who've had a single dose at some 99% or so. So it's a very, very high number. However, if you were expecting for tourists to have been lining up for this reopening, that was bizarrely not the case.
0: Until today, Bali International Airport still hasn't received any international flight slot request whether a flight to or from Bali. But instructions from the National COVID-19 Task Force said that Bali is now an entry point for international flights to Indonesia.
3: That was Tofan Yudhishtira from Rai International Airport outlining some of the issues around bringing tourists back in, notably the fact that no flights have been scheduled to land just yet. So it's a softly, softly approach that the government says it will continue to review. What do you need to do then if you are an international tourist and you want to go to Bali? Well, you'll need to pay for a five-day quarantine at a Balinese hotel and you'll have to stay in your room. On top of that, you'll need $100,000 worth of COVID-19 insurance and you'll have to be double vaccinated within a particular time frame before your arrival in Bali. For now, though, it is reason for the Balinese to be upbeat after what's been a really difficult one and a half years. For CNN, I'm Anisha Tank in Singapore.
1: Say One of my favourite holidays in Bali, though. So recovery there is good sign, even if it takes a bit of time. OK, onwards, port problems. President Biden announcing the port of L.A. will now operate 24-7 to help clear the backlog at one of the world's busiest. This is another major port in Savannah. Georgia is also approaching crisis point with around 80,000 shipping containers stacked up and waiting. Amra Walker, is life Boris, and there and we're great to have you with us. Just talk us through some of the challenges that this port's seeing and whether or not they believe actually the moves announced by President Biden will help.
4: So just to put things in context, Julia, this is the third largest container port in the country after LA Long Beach and also New York, New Jersey. So Uh, First off, I just want to show you what we're seeing here, and it really takes your breath away. If you look behind me, you'll see a wall, a huge wall of just shipping containers piled as high as you can see here at the terminal at the port of Savannah. And as you said, 70 to 80,000 of these steel boxes just waiting uh, to be picked up uh, by retailers or logistics companies. They've been sitting here. Days, and we're talking about a 50% increase in the number of shipping containers that the Port of Savannah now is dealing with. Uh, this backlog that we're seeing has a lot to do with the retailers just not picking up their goods, and as you know, this has a lot to do with the fact that there is a huge shortage of truck drivers in the country. So, yes, I'm sure the Georgia Port Authority uh, would say President Biden's plan to get more commercial driver's license issued so that there could be more hirings of truck drivers uh, will definitely help. On average, the containers are sitting here for four to five days on a normal day. But look, these are not normal times, right? So the average has been bumped up to more than double 12 days. But there's hundreds of containers, we're told, that are sitting here for weeks and weeks at a time. So the ports authority has been on the phone calling retailers, reminding them that they've got stuff here, the freight is here, and it needs to be picked up. They are talking to the federal government right now and to the railways uh, to find more storage facilities. They've identified four pop-up storage facilities inland um, and they're hoping that they'll be able to move some of these shipping containers inland. But look, it, it looks overwhelming. It is overwhelming. But overall, we're told that Operationally, things are moving smoothly, and throughout the morning, we've seen uh, just dozens and dozens of trucks coming in and out about 14,000 uh, trucks uh, that are coming in to do um, transactions, whether it's dropping off or picking up Julia.
1: Yeah, but you make a great point. Four days to several weeks, I think, is illustrative of the challenges here, and it's not just in the United States, it's going on elsewhere around the world, too. Um, Amra Walker, great to have you on the show. Thank you for that. Okay, to so Lebanon now, where the Lebanese Red Cross say at least five people have lost their lives and more than 30 others are hurt after heavy gunfire broke out in Beirut. Protesters have been calling for the removal of a judge leading the investigation into last year's port explosion. Weedman has the latest, Ben, and people there are desperate, of course, for answers, but the challenges of investigating this very clear today.
5: Yes, it's very clear, Julia, that there are forces within Lebanon who do not want to see this investigation uh, move forward. This... Uh, violence that uh, took place today in Beirut, the worst the Lebanese capital has seen in years, uh, was sparked when a protest organized by Hezbollah and Amal, two Shia parties which also have militias, uh, were protesting against Tariq Bittar, who is the judge who was appointed uh, to investigate the August 4th 2020 blast that left more than 2200 people uh, dead. Now he wanted to question Ali, Has, Ali Hassan Khalil, who's a former finance minister affiliated with the Amal movement. Uh, he had Minister Khalil had Ali Hassan Khalil had put forward a legal complaint against the judge, uh, accusing him of bias. On Thursday morning, a court denied that legal complaint. This protest went ahead, and there was fire from surrounding buildings on the protesters. At this point, we understand from the Lebanese Red Cross that six people have been killed, more than 30 wounded. And uh, what we heard from uh, Hezbollah and Amal was they were accusing the Lebanese forces, a Christian party, which also has a militia, of f- have, placing snipers on those buildings and firing upon the protesters. Now, this happened in an area very close to where the opening rounds of the Lebanese Civil War uh, began in April 1975. And many of the scenes we saw today were reminiscent of that children huddling under desks in schools uh, people civilians fleeing from the area the lebanese army has tried to restore control in the area warning that it would open fire on anyone who was shooting in that area and telling civilians to leave as quickly as possible now the new lebanese Prime Minister Najib Mi'ati has met with army officials and is monitoring the situation. Uh, He has called uh, for calm. But as I said, this is the worst violence Beirut has seen in many years. And this is causing extreme concern among residents of Beirut, Uh, many fearing that this could be uh, the beginning of a round of violence, the likes of which Lebanon has not seen since the end of the 1975-1990 civil war there. Julia? Yeah,
1: very worrying. Brent Weedman, thank you so much for joining us on that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Norwegian police say the bow and arrow attack yesterday appears to be an act of terrorism. It happened in the town of Konsberg. Five people were killed in the attack. Police say the suspect was on their radar.
0: It was previously stated that the perpetrator is a 37-year-old Danish citizen living in Norway. The police have previously been in contact with the man, including as a result of previous concerns related to radicalization.
1: A fire at a residential building in Taiwan has left at least 46 people dead and dozens injured. It happened in the middle of the night when residents were sleeping The building was home to many elderly and disabled people. It's unknown what caused the blaze. Still to come, on first move, inflation fears at the Federal Reserve. The FOMC's Mary Daly on jobs, prices and tapering. And one more reason to go green. The head of the IEA says we need to triple spending on renewables, not just to save the planet, but to meet energy demand. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. Call it a case of mid October outperformance, a sweater weather rally for US futures with economic reopening stocks looking particularly strong this morning. Solid earnings, too, from a cornucopia of US banks helping sentiment and United Healthcare raising its 2021 forecast, too. The action in the longer dated US bond market, that's quiet. And that's helping tech, I think, which is also set to rise for a second straight session. That's said, shorter term bond yields have risen to more than one year highs as markets begin pricing in less Federal Reserve pandemic support and perhaps an earlier Fed rate hike liftoff than perhaps predicted or thought earlier as inflation looks less transitory than hoped. Tapering assets will come first. Fed minutes out yesterday show the US central bank ready to begin the process of cutting bond purchases as soon as next month. They laid out an illustrative path that reduces the $120 billion of asset purchases by some $15 billion per month until tapering is done sometime in mid-2022. So it's a long path. Joining us now is Mary Daly, President of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and a voting member of the FOMC. President Daly, Mary, always great to get you on the show. Thank you for joining us. I think a lot of people um, will have read those minutes yesterday and see a group of people that are increasingly concerned about the price pressures as food costs rise, as energy costs rise amid ongoing shortages. Several of those members saying, look, it's time to start pulling back the policy. Is that where we are?
6: Well, when we think about pulling back the policy, it really isn't about tightening or removing support, it's really dialing back the amount of support we're adding to the economy. That's what tapering would be, dialing back the amount of support we're adding. So that bar was substantial further progress towards our goals and clearly we've met that one in terms of inflation, because our, we have a 2% average inflation target, we've made substantial further progress and, and actually gone over that, that level. And on the labor market, if you compare where we are now to where we were in the pandemic depths, we have made tremendous progress. So that's why we're at the point where we feel like we can dial back the level of support we're adding to the economy and put ourselves in a good position to continue to achieve our dual mandate goals.
1: And we need to separate, and I think you're doing it already, the impact and the decision to perhaps pull back on some of that support, the support like bond buying and a future decision to raise interest rates. Because the time lag between those two things is many months. It could even be years.
6: Absolutely. And and really at this point, it is premature to start talking about rate increases. That's a different metric. That's the metric of eliminating employment shortfalls and being sure that we have achieved average pers- Two percent inflation that's sustainable isn't just a, a, a temporary reaction to supply chain bottlenecks that it really is part of the ongoing fundamentals of the economy and we're too far away from those things to call those jobs done. So right now we're just talking about tapering which again is just dialing back the amount of support we're continuing to add to the economy.
1: One of your Federal Reserve colleagues, Raphael Bostic, the president of the Atlanta Fed, um, acknowledged in his view that price rises aren't simply so transitory. In fact, every time he mentions that word, or anyone there mentions that word, they've got a a cookie jar that they put dollars in, one dollar bills in, to sort of punish themselves because he says it's a dirty word. Um, Are you still confident that the price rises that we're seeing are going to dissipate relatively quickly? That that. That transitory is still appropriate, or are we in for the long haul here?
6: You know what I'd like to offer is that we can step back from what word we should use or whether it's a good Mm. or bad word. What I really want us to focus on and what I think is material for policy making is, how long do we expect these to last? And what are the driving forces of these price increases we've seen? Well, they're going to last as long as COVID's with us because COVID's causing the supply chain bottlenecks that we see across the globe. Those are translating into price increases that are eye-popping in some categories that's what i mean by not expected to persist is they're covid related and as covid subsides we would expect those pressures to ease we'll be back to the fundamental dynamics of the economy where inflation is much more related to the strength of the labor market and the overall strength of the economy than it is being buoyed around or boosted by temporary price increases in used cars which you couldn't expect to persist the rate of inflation on used cars can't continue to go on like this forever because it will spur more used car, you know, spur more car creation. But right now we have bottlenecks and semiconductors. That is COVID related.
1: Yeah, the brilliant thing about you is you always sort of make it human and the impact that we're seeing on individuals. And I think as you say, the priority always for you is to look at how the individual is being impacted. And at the point I think where where price rises are impacting people's ability to feed their families, for example, or, or afford the basic things that they need to on a daily basis. And that's where the Federal Reserve has to say, OK, perhaps we're a little bit behind the curve here and we have to temper down on some of those price pressures uh, in order to make sure that, that people can get on with their daily lives and they aren't impacted. I guess that's the key here. Are we late? Is the Federal Reserve late in, in tackling prices for those reasons?
6: So when we think of people, and I I do think of people in everything we do, Mm. when we think of people, we think of two things, the temporary increase in prices or the COVID-related, let's get out of temporary, transitory, episodic, let's put those words aside, let's talk about COVID-related price increases versus jobs. And I'm committed to doing both, right? Right achieving price stability, which is people can count on prices not rising at these rapid rates we've been seeing down the road. And also tr- making sure that they can come back to work when it's safe, they, they feel it's safe to do so when they're not dealing with child care and other kinds of constraints that make it hard to come back to work. This is what we mean when we say achieving the dual mandate. And we, if we would pull back on accommodation for the economy, pull back our support, bridle the economy. It's probably not going to solve the supply chain bottlenecks. In fact, I would wager a bet that it won't solve the supply chain bottlenecks. Things like opening the ports 24-7, that's going to make much more of a material difference on getting these supply chains intact. So one of the things I, I caution us all to do is not think the Fed can do everything or that we're behind because we see a rise in gas or food prices that isn't expected to persist beyond when COVID is on our shore first
1: Yeah, there are far more targeted things that policymakers can do um, that the central bank can't. Uh, I think that was a point well made. Um, To your point on jobs, and I do want to talk about this because I know this is um, a focus of yours. And actually, you've done some some brilliant work, actually, in terms of the impact of inequalities in the labour market. We still have six million people that are out of jobs compared to when we entered the pandemic. And, you know, I follow these numbers every month and I see the unemployment rate for African-Americans, for Hispanics. It is tough to bring those rates down. Also women, primarily out of the labour market because of the uncertainty of schooling and being able to, to take those jobs even part-time, never mind full-time. Um, talk to me about the numbers here too, because this is important. The cost to the economy of not reducing some of these inequities that we see in the labour market. I mean, we're talking trillions of dollars over years.
6: We are talking trillions of dollars, and in fact, the research that we've done shows that we're we're leaving, you know, on average, 1.2, 1.3 trillion dollars just in labor market input on the table each year even before the pandemic because we have people on the sidelines who are of working age they they want to work but they they don't work in the same ways they're either underutilized completely unutilized or not even in the jobs where their skills and talents would match them best and so this is a loss of our economic output and importantly i think it it really is important for all of us to recognize that when they're on the sidelines, the pie, the economic pie for everyone is smaller. So this isn't just about helping people. This is about engaging people fully so that they can help us build and grow the economy. And the pandemic has has really left uh, a bigger scar on individuals who are least able to bear it already underserved in this regard, and so it's incumbent on all of us to get them back in the labor market and really get them participating like they want to do.
1: What about the discussion about further spending if uh, Congress can manage to get its act together? I mean, if, in my understanding of economics, if you add more spending at a time when you've got these supply chain bottlenecks, um, too much money chasing too few goods available, that adds to some of the price pressures. There's also, again, the the social requirement, the need for um, infrastructure spending. Um, How do you view the balance of more spending today versus perhaps providing Other forms of support for people if they don't get the help they need in other ways?
6: Sure. Those are, and I, I, this is really an active debate right now in Congress. And and so I won't front run their, I mean, it's not my Mm. decision, it's our elected officials' decision. So I'll leave the details to them. But let me just give you something from put my economist hat on, look through history. Historically, fiscal spending of all types is not something that, you know, you don't build a bridge overnight. You don't you don't build um, a roadway overnight or even put broadband in rural areas overnight it takes time and so they're debating what kinds of supports the economy needs for the long haul what kinds of things are going to make us globally competitive continue to allow us to to expand our productive capacity and and use everyone in our society to their fullest potential those are really important things to debate but when we think about the near-term inflation outlook it really is not going to be directly affected by decisions about roads, bridges and things that take multiple years to put into place.
1: And President Daly, very quickly, can I just ask you about some of the recent resignations of of the president of the Fed banks of Boston and and Dallas once reports of their trading or investment activities became known? Um, I just wanted to get your views on this. Are more guardrails needed perhaps for, for all concerned?
6: Well, I welcome the review that Chair Powell is taking up about what rules and and procedures should we use to do a very simple thing, ensure that the public trust, which is our most important asset, our most important tool, is something we can earn every single day. You know, the the trading brought to light that certain things we were doing weren't uh, appropriate for people, they look at them and they say, well, wait a minute, I don't quite understand this. So I applaud Chair Powell for saying we're going to do a review and in the Office of the Inspector General um, reviewing the actual trades themselves. These are all important things for us. And I, whatever we, they decide and whatever the rules are, I am prepared as well as my senior team here to comply with them because ultimately, again, and let me underline this, trust is our most important asset and we're committed to earning it every day.
1: Yeah. Thank you for trusting us with your time this morning. As always, a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Mary Daly, great the pleasure. president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are in rally mode as we kick off Thursday trading. The Dow is on track to snap a four day losing streak and in some style as reopening optimism takes hold again. On Wall Street, fresh economic data helping the mood to initial jobless claims in the United States falling to a fresh pandemic low last week and prices on the factory level rose less than expected last month too. So brief respite there as well. Bank earnings continue to come in strong with double-digit profit jumps for Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo and Morgan Stanley. Shares of all four firms are higher in early trade. Actually, we can see Wells Fargo just tilting to the downside there. So spoke too soon. That said, rising corporate costs remain a concern. Delta Airline shares sank from 5% in Wednesday's trade after it warned of the effect of higher fuel prices on Q4 results. JP Morgan also flagging the potential risk of higher costs, too. And amid tight labor markets, we're now seeing workers flex their muscle as well. 10,000 unionized John Deere workers are out on strike today. That's the largest private sector strike in the United States in two years. Hollywood film workers may soon be walking the picket lines as well. The U.S. plans to aggressively expand wind energy capacity, the Biden administration announcing it could hold as many as seven new offshore lease sales by 2025. The United States has fallen well behind Europe, as CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir tweets. There are over 5,000 offshore wind turbines in Europe. The United States has seven. This Coming as the International Energy Agency urges the world to triple clean energy investment by 2030 to tackle climate change in its annual outlook report. Now, I spoke to the IEA Executive Director, Fatih Birol, as the world also struggles with soaring energy prices. Listen to what he had to say.
7: We are seeing a great, creative momentum uh, in terms of clean energy across the world, in North America, Europe, Asia. Around the world. But looking at the challenges we have in front of us, both energy challenges and climate challenges, we need to accelerate our efforts uh, in terms of the solar, wind, electric uh, cars, and other clean energy technologies. Otherwise, we may well see A, more turbulence in the energy markets as we are experiencing now, and B, we may well be short of reaching our climate goals.
1: You're talking about a tripling of green energy investment by 2030 and the key statistic for me in this report is that 70% of that investment has to be done by emerging markets and many of those countries have already faced huge challenges in COVID. There needs to be support from elsewhere in the world, surely, to allow them to ramp up investment. Uh,
7: That's true. I mean, the First of all, when we look at the world, the, we don't have lack of capital. There is enough money. And I believe money, capital, will meet the clean energy projects uh, sooner or later in North America and in Europe. But the issue is bulk of the growth of emissions will come from the emerging countries in the future. Mm. And today, only a tiny bit, 20 percent of these clean energy investments are going to emerging countries so therefore uh, my hope my expectation is for example in the upcoming uh, climate summit uh, in glasgow there will be some uh, international architecture mechanism so that the rich countries provide some catalyst money for the clean energy investments in emerging countries and it is even in the benefits of the in the interest of the rich countries because emissions going to atmosphere from Jakarta or from Detroit or from uh, Stockholm, from Johannesburg, it has the same effect on everybody. Emissions don't have a passport. So to reduce emissions there uh, will be cheaper and also in the benefits of everybody, including the rich countries.
1: Within the report, you also plot two scenarios. You say, look, we'll take where we are today and plot what the future looks like. We'll also look at all the different pledges and policies that have been promised and assume they get, in- get enacted. And then we'll look at the rising temperature for the world. And assuming in that second case, everything takes place. We've got demand for fossil fuels peaking in 2025. We've got global CO2 emissions falling by 40% by 2050, which sounds great, but it's still not enough.
7: You are completely right. If it that- Why we did this report one month before the COP meeting, the climate summit, is we want to show the governments around the world who commit, made commitments to address the climate change, to reduce the emissions. It is the United States. It is Europe. It is Japan, China, Korea, and others. If we add them together, where does it bring us for uh, climate, and what does it mean for the energy markets? What we see, if we put all these ambitions, uh, all these commitments together, we only reduce about 40 percent of the emissions by 2050. We are far from reaching our 1.5 degrees Celsius temperature increase, which uh, scientists tell us it is the maximum. What do we come with these commitments? We come to 2.1 degrees temperature increase which would have catastrophic implications for the rather fragile equilibrium of our planet.
1: We are going through a a power and energy crisis at this moment. Wherever you look in the world and we can see prices accelerating, we're also going to see the largest rise in carbon emissions, the second largest rise that we've ever seen this year as we burn more coal. What's the risk that while we're trying to invest in renewable energies, but we don't invest so much because it's a dirty word now to invest in fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. we create a short term dislocation where actually prices soar. And we know that that can create economic crisis. It can cause social crisis. If people can't heat their homes, they can't get around because they can't drive their cars. There's a danger here that we underinvest in the fossil fuels and we don't invest enough in the renewable fuels and then we have significantly higher price spikes in the short term because we simply don't have enough energy?
7: There is a great risk here. If we don't invest in clean energy options, we may well see more turbulences in the energy markets in terms of price spikes. This is a serious uh, issue, but I am hopeful that the governments around the world will accelerate the clean energy transitions and clean energy technology investments. Not only for the reason uh, to save the planet, to address the climate change, but many governments would like to have an advantageous position in the clean energy technology race coming in terms of electric cars, in terms of the hydrogen, in terms of the solar, in terms of uh, wind. So I am hopeful that the governments will see the risk of A, creating uh, market turbulences to address this issue, and B, for their own governments, for their own economies, to prepare them for the next chapter of the uh, global energy uh, industry.
1: Hmm, But we still need fossil fuels in the interim. You're watching Fossil First Move, more to come. Welcome back to First Move. Ringing the opening bell around 15 minutes ago at the New York Stock Exchange, IHS Towers, one of the world's largest independent operators of mobile phone towers, connecting countries like Nigeria, the Ivory Coast and Zambia. Its IPO values the firm at nearly $7 billion. And just to be clear, IHS works beyond Africa's borders too with operations in Colombia, Peru, Brazil and elsewhere. Sam Darwish is Chairman and Group CEO, and he joins us now from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Sam, fantastic to have you with us. Tell me how this moment feels. It's a huge moment, I'm sure, for you and your team.
8: Julia, thank you for having me. I mean, we're trying to, to soak it in. This is unprecedented for the continent. I mean, no company of this scale and quality and nature has ever made it to this stock exchange, and we're so happy to be at the big board.
1: Yes, fantastic. Congratulations. Talk to me about how you're going to spend the money and talk to me about what IHS Towers actually does.
8: Look, IHS started 20 years ago. We were It was founded by a group of engineers led by me. We are an engineering-focused company. We want to solve problems, telecom infrastructure problems, in particular in the emerging markets. At the moment, we are in 10 countries spanning three continents, as you rightfully said, Uh, we we, we build towers, we connect those towers with fiber, we basically provide connectivity to people otherwise that won't have a, a phone or a connectivity or ability to connect to the world. I mean, that's what we do and that's what we love to do.
1: You know, whenever I talk to people that operate in these parts of the world, and and you do operate, I mean, half of the towers I believe, are in Nigeria. But as I mentioned, you're pretty diverse in terms of the countries, some of them challenging, whether it's property right concern, perhaps the odd terrorism concern in certain countries too. You need local knowledge. You need local connections too. How important is that? And, And how do you manage some of the risks that I just mentioned there?
8: Yeah, our markets are definitely challenging. I mean, they have their own issues. And that's why our engineering kind of like expertise comes into motion but we cover 10 countries that have roughly 700 million people i mean these are young vibrant economies people that are eager to basically improve their lives bridge the digital divide so so yes there may be some challenges but everyone needs the phone i mean the, the, the 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 past year the sad pandemic 2020 taught us all that the world could have lived without cars, planes and others, but we couldn't have lived without connectivity. And that's what we do.
1: I mean, the parts of the world that you're in, and to your point about the need for connectivity, it's some of the best growth opportunities, I think, uh, at this current moment in time. Talk to us again about expansion, where you see perhaps opportunity, and are you profitable in each of these areas? How does that play out?
8: Look, we are cash generative in all our operations. Uh, we, we, we we make money that we reinvest in building towers, in building fi- fi- fiber, in building rural solutions. We have now roughly 2,000 rural sites that we, we plan to build in the next couple of years in, in, in Nigeria and Africa in general. I mean, these are villages basically that in the 21st century still don't have still don't have coverage. So, 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 so big plans. Of course, with our skill set, with our deep operational skill set, we look at the emerging market as a universe. We look at LATAM, we look at the Middle East, Southeast Asia. I mean, these are areas with with, with millions, hundreds of millions of people, again, young, vibrant. They still want connectivity. They want the broadband pipe to be wider. They want to be able to watch the Netflixes of the world, the Facebooks, and this and that and and we have to provide it to them i mean that's 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 they need to do that to access better healthcare they need to do that to access financial inclusion and then at the basis of all of this is that piece of tower that land that connection to the tower it just processes the whole communication and we are proud and we are happy that we are able to build and contribute to that to that uh, bridging of the digital divide
1: yeah fascinating times um ntn which is obviously a huge company, is a significant shareholder of yours. There are reports that perhaps they'll look to sell down some of their stake now. How much of a concern is that if investors are looking at your stock today and trading and thinking, hey, perhaps there is huge opportunity here? Is that a concern? Anything to worry about?
8: Look, uh, uh, MTN, of course, is, is, is a public company. They speak that to, for themselves. This is not a concern. I mean, we are. we have always been an independent tower company, MTN got into the share capital by virtue of an asset contribution at some point of time. It was a big and important asset for them. So, so we're happy to have them, but they are just a financial in- investor. We're independent. If MTN wants to sell over their time, that's their own decision. I mean, we believe we have sufficient demand, so we're not concerned about that, none whatsoever.
1: Sam, onwards and upwards. Congratulations on going public today. We'll see how it trades later on. And for now, thank you so much for joining us and talking us through thank what you're you, doing. Julia. Thank you. Thank
8: you for Sam taking Sam there, back. Chairman
1: and Group Bye. CEO Bye. of IHS Towers there. Thank you. You're watching First Move. Stay with us. There's more to come. Welcome back to First Move. Now to a down-to-earth message for billionaire space race contenders from an heir to the British throne. A day after Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin sent a Hollywood star into orbit, Prince William said the world's greatest mind should focus on saving this planet, not perfecting ways to leave it.
0: A
2: rise in, in climate anxiety. You know, people, young people now are growing up where their futures are basically being threatened the whole time. It's very unnerving, and it's it's, it's very you know anxiety making. We need some of the world's greatest brains and minds fixed on trying to repair this planet, not trying to find the next place to go and live.
1: I'm Claire Sebastian It joins me now. Claire, I'm an uber space geek, but I have to say, myself and many of the people that I've spoken to over the last six months, as we've seen these rockets launch, have I think have had the same feeling.
9: Yeah I think many people would agree with him certainly there have been some some pretty high profile criticisms uh, of this this billionaire space race that the director of the world food program uh, said back in in June that he you know he would love to see these billionaires team up uh, to save the 41 million people who are set to starve this year that it would only take 6 billion to do that. And I think it's raising eyebrows, not just because this is billionaires, but but that some of them are electing to send themselves uh, into space. But Jeff Bezos, he talked about this in an interview back in July with CNN's Rachel Crane. He addressed this very issue. Take a look.
0: We have to do both. And uh, what our job at Blue Origin is to do, and what this uh, space tourism mission is about, is having a mission where we can practice so much that we get really good at operational space travel, more like a commercial airliner and less like what you think of as traditional space travel. If we can do that, then we'll be building a road to space for the next generations to do amazing things there. And those amazing things will solve problems here on Earth.
9: So Jeff Bezos making the point that saving this planet and, you know, sending many, many people into space are not necessarily mutually exclusive goals. He has expressed in the past that there is a a climate purpose behind his uh, space initiative, and that is to essentially move heavy industry and energy generation off this planet and onto another one. And that would solve some of the climate issues that we're seeing. But obviously, that's a lofty goal. It's in no way guaranteed. And the climate crisis, Julia, as we've been talking about, is imminent. Yeah. And also, let's be clear,
1: tourism. They argue that space tourism helps finance all their research and operations in order to be able to make these advances that help on Earth. I guess the example I would use, and I'm not defending them, but I'm justifying. I mean, look at what SpaceX is doing. The the satellite links that they're trying to put up, Starlink, that will allow telecommunications in some of the hardest to reach places in the world, we hope, and Internet access, telemedicine for those people in those places will be transformative and it will save lives. So as always with these things, it's not black and white.
9: It's not black and white at all. And I think, you know, in some ways the billionaire space race in many would argue has al- already been won by uh, SpaceX uh, and Elon Musk, a much more mature company uh, than than Blue Origin or even Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic. They're already doing manned spaceflight. They launched the first uh, manned mission from U.S. soil uh, in May, and they own a third of the the satellites that are currently in orbit. And as you say, trying to broaden access uh, to the internet around the world, a mission that so far no one has been able to solve. So certainly, there there are a lot of sort of Technologies that are being developed by these, the, 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 the sort of the billionaires behind the space race that, that have a, a greater good in society. And I think uh, Prince William could perhaps also face criticism uh, for coming himself from a position of privilege in making these comments.
1: Yeah, and you know, I made the observation earlier this week that Bezos and Musk have a combined wealth, paper, of course, in, in large part, than the entire GDP of South Africa. Um, why not do both? Help this planet advance in space. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next, and we'll be back tomorrow.
0: When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level.